Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we are joined by Marie Coombs, CEO of We Restore Calm. Marie is a subject matter expert in conflict management. With extensive experience in dealing with various conflict issues, Marie assesses disputes and suggests tailored solutions based on business and individual needs. As an accredited workplace mediator, Marie boasts a remarkable 95% success rate in two-party mediations within challenging and complex operating environments. Having worked at Royal Mail for 17 years, Marie honed her skills in conflict resolution, mediation, change management, employee and industrial relations, and employee engagement. She became an accredited mediator in 2014 through TCM's National Certificate in Workplace Mediation. Marie was awarded the Workplace Mediator of the Year at the National Mediation Awards 2020 for her excellence in mediation, particularly in the realm of mental health, and her seamless adaptation to online mediation during COVID-19 pandemic were acknowledged. Her dedication extends to empowering individuals with mental health concerns and neurodiversity, emphasizing the impact of conflict on employee well-being. Maria's commitment is evident through her roles as a timed change champion, a mental health first aider, and her advocacy for mental health within Royal Mail. Outside of her professional endeavors, Marie enjoys spending time with her family, indulging in activities such as walking her two dogs, listening to music, and engaging in running and weight training. Good morning, Marie, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Hi, Mary. Lovely to, uh, lovely to be talking to you again. How are you doing? I'm well. And you, how are you this afternoon? Uh, yeah, afternoon in the UK. Pretty good, thank you. The sun's gone in today, so it's a bit cooler, so it's a bit easier, it's a bit easier to bear. <laughs> yes, I'm in West Tennessee, and it's the middle of June, and usually it's really hot, but it has been unseasonably cool. I'm in a sweater today at work, and so that's lovely. Yeah, that, that has a big impact on uh, how productive we are. So, <laughs> yes, That's so true. Well, let's begin how I like to start this podcast, and let's hear about the first job you ever had. Uh, so the pe- first job I ever had was working for a family friend uh, who owned uh, what we call in the UK market gardeners, uh, and my first job was packing cucumbers. So <laughs> every Saturday morning, I'd be there, sat in front of this conveyor belt, sticking cucumbers, making sure that all the wrapping was on, making sure there were holes in the wrapping, making sure they were straight enough. And then putting them in boxes. That was my first job. <laughs> wow. And I bet you were excited to have it. I, I was excited to get the money every, every week. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> 15 yes. years old and somebody's giving you cash just to stand there and pack cucumbers all morning. Yeah, that's that, that's fine with me. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. So how long did you do that? Uh, a couple of years and then I uh, I went into retail for a few years um, while I was at university. So I had a part-time job in retail the whole time I, I was going through my A-levels and then into university. Um, and then once I'd left university, entered the world of work proper and uh, not really looked back since. <laughs> I feel like I'm like working forever. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you as the mediator extraordinaire that you are and, and dealing with conflict resolution. Is that how you started out professionally? Definitely not. Definitely not. I was the one running away from conflict. Um, it, it didn't matter what sort of conflict it was, whether it was at home or work. If I, if there was conflict, I was in the opposite direction at a fast rate of knots, definitely. So, um, so now, um, I think I started in a sales role in my prop, my proper career, um, and I hated every second of it. Uh, because I was, you know, I'm I'm an extroverted introvert, 
And for somebody like that to do sale, it, it was not a good fit. Uh, definitely not a good fit. I ended up in another job after that where I was managed by what I now know was a bully. Mm. Uh, that was a really, really difficult situation. Again, I think I was only there for a couple of months because I just got to a point where I thought, you know what, I'm not paid enough to deal with this. And as much as I ran away, it was actually the right choice because not long afterwards, I got a job at Royal Mail. And then I was there for nearly two decades doing lots of different jobs while I was there. But uh, yeah, in, interesting 20 years in between. So how did you end up leaving Royal Mail and going into full-time work, workplace conflict resolution? So I had the, the luxury, I suppose, of being trained up to be a full-time mediator back in 2014. And... I've, to be honest with you, I've trained a lot of in-house mediators since, and I've never heard of a team that has been solely, all they do is mediation. They don't get involved in anything else. They don't have a day job on the, alongside. So I had the luxury of being able to be in that mode all the time. It didn't matter whether I was mediating, having conversations with managers, running team events. I was able to use those skills day after day after day. And in 2019, um, the business underwent another restructure, as, as businesses do. And I just saw that as an opportunity to to go and do this, maybe on a bit of a wider scale. Um, I, I didn't want to kind of keep the the secret that seemed to be happening in Royal Mail. Um, I didn't want to keep it secret. I wanted to tell the whole world how amazing mediation was. Uh, and I kind of been on a mission ever since, if you've probably seen my name everywhere. But um, yeah, I, I was so hugely passionate. I went, I literally went from, in terms of the conflict styles, the avoiding style to an owl style, to a, a collaborating style overnight, just literally through doing the training. And the last thing I wanted to do is end up back in another job where I couldn't be that collaborator, where I felt most comfortable. So it was a case of, right, let's go. Um, I took a bit of time off, uh, having worked since I was 15. I thought I deserve a couple of months off. Um, and then I, I just ended up, Mediate, doing all sorts of things, training mediators, coaching mediators, mediating, and all all the other stuff that that goes on in between using those skills ever since until I kind of fell into understanding that from my personal experience, I had a lot to give in terms of mental health and supporting people with mental health conditions in those environments um, as well. And, and also neurodiversity has been diagnosed with ADHD in my 40s. Uh, and and that's, that's been mind blowing as well. So all of these things that I've been doing have kind of led me to the point I'm at now, basically doing what I love every day. <laughs> that is amazing. So how did you go from being conflict avoidant to going through a mediation training and finding like this, this new passion, this new direction in your life? Did you not know what you were getting into? And is that why you signed up for this training? I'll be honest with you, I didn't. I'd, I'd kind of done, so my role at Royal Mail, I, I worked in HR and I'd been handed this grievance uh, and I looked at it and thought, you know what, these two people need a conversation. And that was my very first mediation. And it was nothing like what the mediation process looked like. It was literally, I'm going to get these two people in a room and see what happens. We we don't do that as mediators. <laughs> we do a lot more prep before we get them to that point. So I got these two people in a room and actually it went incredibly well. And they did walk away from it on better terms and all the rest of it. And the next day I was talking to a, one of the union representatives at Royal Mail and they said, they're advertising for mediators. I think you should go for it. 700 people applied for 10 jobs. There was only 10 full-time mediators in 130,000 strong workforce. Yeah, 700 people applied. I got one of the 10 jobs. So I'm sat there in that training going, well, I must have something that this team wants because I've been picked out of 700. So there's obviously something there. 
But it wasn't until I did my very, very first mediation. Um, and I sat there after the two parties had left. We got an agreement. We'd gone through the whole process, got an agreement, sat there afterwards. And I spoke of talking to my co-mediator and we just looked at each other and we just went, wow, it does work. <laughs> that was the point where I went from turtle to owl. That was that point when I went from avoidant to collaborating. So, um, yeah, I, I even know the moment that that switch went in my head. It's really bizarre. But all my conflicts now, I won't say I handle them perfectly. I get them wrong every now and then, as everybody does. But I do. I have a, a phrase in my head. You cannot change people, but you can change how you react. That yeah. I can control how I react in a conflict situation. I have control over that. And that's what I work on now. I can't change how other people react, but I can change how I react. I love that because that's what I see is this in this space of conflict resolution is that for me, it's first and foremost about personal empowerment. It's taking that control back because many times when we're caught in a conflict, we feel caught. We feel like there's nothing we can do. We need somebody else to come in. And it's that flipping that switch that, you know, reframing and realizing, no, Nobody else needs to come in and save me. I do have power. What am I going to do about it? Absolutely. Yeah. And it was that moment that I kind of, I, I'd heard this phrase. I mean, it was a, a phrase that um, an, a previous manager had said, you know, when, when, I've, when I've had had situations with previous colleagues, where, you know, you can't change how they, how they react, but you, can, you do have control over how you react. And it was at that moment that I just, I'd, I'd seen it in action. I spent all day seeing it in action, seeing people take accountability and responsibility and ownership um, for how they feel. And I'm like, it does work. And from that, say so from that moment on, every single conflict, I can't say I don't react emotionally. I wouldn't be human if I didn't react emotionally, but I'm able to take a bit of a step back from it and go, right, okay, that's the emotional response. What's the logical response that actually protects the relationship rather than damages it you know I think maybe one reason why people don't engage in fruitful discussions with something that's difficult for them is because they don't have you know the proof is in the pudding they don't see it right they haven't practiced it and for some reason people don't realize that it is a skill and any skill if you're going to get better at playing piano if you're going to get better at cross ditch or running marathons you practice it and then you get comfortable and then you have this imagination and a track record of what it could be or what the process is like. But if you never, if you're always avoiding, right, yeah. uh, but you're protecting yourself in one particular way and it's quote unquote working for you, yeah. of course, it's not giving you your best life. Yeah. Spoiler alert. It doesn't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> never works. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, the 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 thing is, it, this is a conversation that I've actually had as recently as last week. We are not taught conflict resolution in skills, or certainly wasn't when I went through school. I don't know if, if things have changed now, but we learn how to deal with conflict by how our parents dealt with it. We learn how to deal with conflict by looking at what happened in the playground, what happened in the classroom, what our teachers were doing. And a lot of conflict, certainly when I was was growing up, was about don't engage. You'll make it worse. I was even told, you know, when I was bullied at school, ignore the bullies, they'll go away. And you get that stuck in your head so that when you're faced with bullies, when you're faced with difficult people, challenging situations in the workplace, I don't, I don't know if anybody else is the same, but I almost have my mother's voice in my head. Ignore it, it'll go away. And it doesn't. It genuinely doesn't. And I see that in every single mediation, that it's got to a point where 
actually the organization thinks they've tried everything it's been going on for months sometimes years the record i've had is a conflict that had gone on for over 10 years that i was asked to come in and mediate that's 10 years of those two people and everybody around them being affected by that situation they think they've tried everything and when they call in the mediators once it's almost got to the point of no return because everybody thinks, oh, it'll go away, it'll go away, it'll resolve on its own. And it doesn't. It genuinely doesn't. Yeah. I think it is interesting that we just, we, I don't know why we engage in this magical thinking. Because we know that, you know, if you don't clean your kitchen, it just gets worse and worse and worse. So you don't wish the dishes away. And it's the same thing with our relationships. Our relationships are going to fall apart if we don't tend to them. Right? Absolutely. That is just it's just normal. You've got to tend to things to keep, keep at an even level. But if you let yourself go and you don't manage your emotions, you don't manage your workplace, what are you going to expect? A, a certain amount of chaos. And then that's detrimental. Absolutely. Yeah. As, as I say, the, the number of times, and the thing is as well, one of the things that used to happen at Royal Mayors, we'd end up going potentially back to the same offices. So it's almost like they hadn't learned by the fact that it hadn't worked, ignoring it over here. And I've, I've seen the same since I've left. It's not a Royal Mail thing. It's a it's a, an organisation thing um, that, oh, if we ignore it, it'll go away. If we ignore this one, this one might go away. Oh, well, that one has it. Well, this one might go. And it's just like, yeah, it, uh, what's the definition of insanity? Repeating this, Repeating the same thing and expecting a different result. That's right. You know, it's it's uh, just like with dishes, early, often, swiftly, justly. You know, if you deal with it right away, the first time you feel something, imagine how easy, easier it is to deal with. And as you say, when it's been going for weeks, months, years, it's so unnecessary. The suffering, the loss of productivity. I am most interested, and I'm sure you are too, is the human suffering and the toll it takes on individuals. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And using the washing up analogy, you know, if you've got one, of, if you've got a casserole dish that's absolutely baked in, if you soak it and wash it immediately after using it, oh, it's 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 easy to to get rid of and put it away. You leave it for six months, you come back to it, it's set <laughs> like concrete. That's what conflict's like. It sets like concrete if you do not mm. deal with it. Mm, that's a good analogy. So you mentioned that you had a work situation that was. Uh, short-lived, but you had a boss that was a bully. Can you tell us a little bit about that situation and, and when you were in it, how you dealt with it? So it started off with the behaviours actually being directed towards somebody else. And the avoidant in me was like, oh, it's not me. Great. It's somebody else that they're picking on. Um, but it was picking on. It was a letter would be written. I mean, this this was in these were in the days where we still printed and sent letters out as opposed to emailing, you know. I'm not quite old enough to be prehistoric, but I'm old enough to remember the days before email. And we'd print, we'd print letters off. Mine would just go straight in the envelope and be posted off, but hers would be pulled out and you've got a mistake here, you've got a smudge here, you've done this wrong, you've done that. And it'd be, it wouldn't be done in private. It'd be done in front of everybody else. She'd, we'd be on the phone to engineers. She'd grab the phone off, off the, 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 the other lady that was doing the same role as me and start barking orders down the phone to the engineer on the other end of the phone, belittling both of them in the process. Again, in an office full of people, she'd slam doors. She she just would not treat people with respect. She, she was appalling when I look back at it. But because it wasn't directed at me, I was keeping my head down, you know, typ typical, uh, typical avoidance style, head in Michelle, hoping nobody sees me. But then she left. 
So about six weeks into it, she left. And once she left, that was it. It got directed at me. So I got those behaviours directed at me. And it was the, it was, it wasn't even day after day. It was hour after hour of this constant, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. No opportunity to fail and learn from my own mistakes. No opportunity to turn around and go, actually, I don't agree. Can we sit down and talk about this? It was I'm my way or the highway. That was essentially um, what I was dealing with day, well, hour after hour, to the point where after three months, I'd said, you know what, enough's enough, I need to go. And I'd say, walk, walked into Royal Mail a month later or a couple of months later. So, um, so yeah, I mean, th- those behaviours are sort of in a nutshell, disrespect, constant verbal abuse, and just just belittling in front of everybody else. And it, it, again, it's the unnecessariness of it. It was almost like she enjoyed the impact she was having on people and enjoyed picking fights with people. That was the feeling I got at the time. Mm. And that's kind of, you know, if I've been subjected to those behaviours since or I've seen those behaviours since, I immediately go back to that that situation where I'm kind of like, no, that's not good. I'm sorry that happened to you. That must have been very jarring to be treated that way. Well, having gone from uh, from virtually from university um, where you are treated with respect, you're sort of given responsibility probably for the first time for some people, and then all of a sudden faced with that where essentially I was being treated like a very domineering parent and, and walking into that environment, having had all this uh, responsibility and this freedom and this ability to put my head above the parapet without somebody going, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong all the time. It wasn't just jarring. It was like whiplash. Hmm. Yeah, it yeah. was just like, being snapped back get back in your place kind of thing what do you think was going on at that organization that allowed this bullying behavior so this is where I actually quite liked the anonymity to a certain extent of Royal Mail being being one of many bases because that organization was a small organization it was a family-run organization and this particular this particular manager I had her manager was her father Mm. So for whatever reason, I, I I don't know what happened behind closed doors, but I think it highly unlikely he ever challenged her behaviour, um, just purely because it kept happening. Um, I think it highly, and, and in front of him as well, it wasn't a case of she doing it behind closed, closed doors. Everybody knew what she was like and it was never challenged. So going from an organisation of 20 employees to one of 130,000, I was like, oh, I really can go and hide under the table and nobody will ever know. So uh, I went literally from one extreme to the other and it was the best thing I could have done, actually, because it gave me that space to breathe. But yeah, it just wasn't challenged because she had the power. When you think about your different working experiences and Royal Mail and working for yourself and your own organisation and being a consultant, what strikes you as the the best experience you've ever had with an organization or an individual and what was so good about it? So I had two particular managers at Royal Mail who both demonstrated exactly the same traits, both of which I'm still in regular contact with now. Uh, I even count them both as friends. That is the, the, the kind of people they were. And they did simple things like they treated me like a human being. Whether they agreed with me or not, they took the time to listen. They took the time to understand. Uh, one of the managers, I underwent two or three significant bereavements in a short space of time. And I rang her up and I said, you know what, I just need some space. And she, she said, Marie, take all the time you need. So it was that respect, 
not as an employee, but as a human being. You know, we're, we're both members of the human race here. Let's treat each other the way we wish to be treated. And that's all I ever expect from anybody, just to be treated the way that, that I would wish to be treated. But they didn't just say they were going to do stuff. They walked the walk. Yeah, they actually did what they set out to do and made sure that everybody around them felt psychologically safe, basically. Hmm. It seems so basic because it is. And it, it is. seems like such a simple ask, treat people well. And yet we know there's a whole variety of reasons why people act the way they do. When we see people show up, you know, if we think about an iceberg, right, we're just seeing who <laughs> they are on this particular day and we don't know the causation for good or for ill. Absolutely. And I know one thing that you do is you work with you work with mental health issues and struggles at organizations. Yeah. Do you have any advice for us as to how to be that support for others that we might suspect is having a mental health issue or if somebody tells us? I mean, those are different issues. Yeah, I mean, the, the simplest thing is to create a psychologically safe work environment. That That is the simplest thing to do. And it doesn't matter whether you have a mental health condition or you're just having a bad day or a whole, you know, any anything that affects us. Having a psychologically safe environment is really, really important. And the, the key tenets of that are being treated fairly. And that's not just about um, how we are treated. It's also how we perceive others being treated. So, for example, if you've got somebody who's struggling with their mental well-being for, for whatever reason at that moment in time, if they've seen other people struggle and the organisations turn around and not provided them support, treated them fairly or looked after them, they're not going to put their hand up and go, actually, I'm struggling as well. But if they see other people being treated in, a, in, in the way we wish to be treated, treated with respect, allowed a little bit of um, space and time, other people are more likely to go, actually, I'm struggling as well. And people recover quicker when they've got support it's a key part of recovery is the level of support and that it comes from all different angles not just from the workplace it comes from outside of work as well so fairness is really really important and the perception of fairness is just as important trust um hugely hugely important not just from a point of view of being able to trust the people around us but also feeling like we belong as well and that we are trusted and um, there is also an element of um, self-confidence that comes with that. So if we are able to sort of say, you know, I've got stuff going on, I haven't necessarily done this in the way that um, I wanted to, can I have another go? You know, being able to fail without that that fear of retribution is hugely important in terms of building our self-confidence and our self-belief in ourselves, which in themselves support people's mental health and well-being. There's all sorts of different things. There's four or five different things that should be very, very basic things in, a, in an organization's culture. Fairness, trust and and being able to, to be ourselves, bring our whole selves to work uh, are, are three of the most important. And it's what mediation restores. It restores that psychologically safe space where we are being treated fairly. We see both parties. We talk to both parties. We treat both parties exactly the same way. Um, we allow them a little bit of control. We allow them time and space to work through. We build trust and rapport with them. So all those things we're doing in mediation, organizations should have them as their values, their basics every single day. And as I say, it doesn't matter whether it's a, a one-off issue that you're struggling with or whether it's a long-term condition like the ones I've had. Just having that psychologically safe space is the first step to allow somebody to actually get the support and help that they need, regardless of where it's come from. What you're saying is very reasonable. And <laughs> many, <laughs> many of the organizations that I that I go into, one of the first things I hear is, 
they play favorites yes. favoritism i don't trust you know uh, you know i get called in to do training and i see the look on people's faces they're like yeah that sounds great mary that sounds great but mm, i don't trust these people and even when i see organizations that want to turn the ship around and it can be turned around but trust once it's broken you need to see it repaired. And as you said, we see it repaired with how the organization treats other people. Yes. I think how we treat people on their worst day or when they've made a really bad mistake sends a message to what an organization's or individual's values really are. So if you get, if somebody gets caught doing something really bad, you know, let's, let's say they embezzle. I mean, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, they break some sort of law. How do you treat that person? Right. Or, something that's not criminal, somebody who has going through um, health issues. How are you treating that person? When I see, let's say as a manager or an, or, or an owner, that person's health issues might impact their work, their ability yeah. to be here, and therefore the efficiency of the organization. How do I still treat that person? That sends a message, as you've said, to everybody. We are watching. What do you really believe, leader? What do you really believe? And it's not in the everyday when everything is going well and the business is booming and everyone's happy. It's when things go south, when things sour. And they will, because we're humans. We make mistakes. The markets turn. People get sick. People do bad things. How do you behave then? And the thing is, that brings me back to these these two managers I had at Royal Mail. They said, we're going to do this. We said we're going to treat people like this. And they didn't just say it. They did it. And it's the action, uh, you know, action speak louder than words. It's it's one of those phrases that has, has been handed down for, for years and years and years. But it's absolutely true. You can say, you can say all the flowery language. You can be, you can say, we have these values. We have these behaviors. This is what we expect for everybody. But if you don't back that up with actions, you lose the trust of everybody that works with you. Because you can sit there and say, you know, one of our core values is that we treat each other um, with respect. We treat each other with dignity and respect. But if just one person sees another person not being treated with dignity and respect, that's that value destroyed. I know a lot of leaders, uh, good leaders today, who believe these things, believe psychological safety, believe in reflect, you know, being reflective practice and, and these ideas of really treating people with dignity and respect so that people can flourish and yet, sometimes I see how their organizations work, and there's a disconnect between what I really think a leader or leaders value and what actually happens. What do you think leaders can do or how us who are maybe different, lower down of the leadership pecking order, how can we help bring about psychological safety or help leaders be reflective to see that they're actually not walking their talk so it goes back to what i said we can change we can we've got control of our own behaviors but we can't change other people's the first thing we need to do is role model the behaviors we expect from others that is that is step number one if you aren't treating treating people with dignity and respect what hope do you have of influencing others to change their behavior so it doesn't matter whether you are the the person packing cucumbers or you're the CEO. If you're not demonstrating um, that you are treating people fairly, that you are somebody that can be trusted, you've got no hope of influencing anybody else. So it starts with us. That's got to be the first thing that we do. And then it is about challenging. 
it is about challenging in through our one-to-ones you know when we sat down saying you know do you mind if I provide you with a little bit of feedback uh not not everybody will welcome that but a lot of organizations are using what they call 360 degree feedback where they get that feedback from 360 degrees so above and and below organizations that encourage that be open and honest in that feedback but don't just say oh this is going wrong it's about reframing it as could we try this so almost not not handing them the answers that's it sounds a little bit like you're, you're gifting them the answers but coming back with what you think might help so when i am doing um mediation things like that i will ask simple questions what works well what doesn't work so well what can we do differently and what does that look like? Because people like a whinge. We are certainly in the UK. We, we are a country of whinges, unfortunately. <laughs> um, if we can complain about something, we will do. Um, but complaining is fine as long as we're providing, you know, actually, could we try this? And say, I don't like this. So can we try this? So there are some simple things that we can do ourselves. If you go to, and I know even with these two managers, if I'd have gone to them, well, I don't like how this is happening. The first question they would have asked is, what can we do about it? So being able to to come with that answer straight away, actually, we need to do this. We need to try this instead. That that is, There's only so much that we can do. People have to want to change. They have to want to see that things aren't working the way they do. But doing it once isn't the thing that will change things. It's about keeping doing it. So I was running um, a negotiation and influencing course last week. And this was one of the things we were talking about, about building habits, about changing behaviours. And actually, when you try and change somebody's behaviour for the first time, it, it probably won't. It'll probably miss the mark. It's about keep going back and doing the same thing. And I think somebody in the group actually turned around and said, it takes 20 times for somebody to do that new behaviour for it to become a habit. There's, I'm sure there's loads of theory around that, but you will never change somebody just by trying it once. Or you, the only way you've got of changing people around you is by role modeling and keeping at that change request. Yeah. You know, psychological safety. I used to think, um, oh, I read a great book um, by Amy Edmondson. Yeah. Yes. On psychological safety, that organizations were like, you know, an organization is psychological, has psychological safety or it doesn't. But after reading it, I realized, no, it's pockets within organizations, right? For, of course, organizations is an abstraction. Even a team is an abstraction, but a team is closer to what we can get our hands around, like these people with these actions in this atmosphere. And so you could be a part of an organization where you have all these different sorts of pockets, right? And at different levels of moral maturity, right? And psychological safety. But of course, as you said, it could trickle down to the individual. Am I a psychologically safe person? Can I be the person in the cucumber line where other people feel like they can talk to me, right? Yeah. And we all know that leaders, uh, leadership, you know, there's the name and then there's the action. And the leader is as the leader does. And we all know who's in charge. And we all know who we can talk to about real things and real problems. And you just get it. All you have to do is show up and, and you start reading the room and reading the organization. Who who really cares? Do they really care about their values? How is it lived out? And you see it, right? And I absolutely agree that if we, we should be the change that we want. It starts absolutely. with us. It does start with us. So when we think about, uh, we talk a lot more which is wonderful today about neurodivergence and mm -hmm. making a more inclusive environment I know autism, which is a, is a very broad, with some of the characteristics that uh, people with autism sometimes present is, 
I just said reading the room, right? This, for some people, the inability to maybe read the room like neurotypical people do. And so then they get dinged and misunderstood. So can you talk a little bit about how we can really concretely be more opening in our workplaces to different ways of processing and being at work? Yeah, so the, the the shock I had, it was only a couple of months ago where I actually got the diagnosis of being ADHD. Um, having spent the previous 40-something years thinking I was neurotypical, but actually when I when I broke down my thought process, when I looked at the way that I view the world and how I solutionize and how I do everything that makes me who I am, when I was talking to, to people and saying, oh, this happens, when I'm having this conversation with you, this is going on in my brain, and I was getting people looking at me going, that's not normal. Well, that's really helpful. Thanks. Um, <laughs> not the most helpful thing you could have said to me. Um, the thing that we forget, we get so hung up on, is somebody ADHD? Are they on the autism spectrum? Are they? And actually, the only thing we need to remember is when it comes to neurodiversity, all we're doing is recognising that every single person on this planet thinks, perceives and processes information in a slightly different way to the person sat next to them. So my uh, my husband, he listens to audiobooks because that is the best way he can process information. If he went to a doctor, he would be classified as neurotypical. For me, I um, use something called bionic reading, um, which I've just started to use, which where certain letters um, in a sentence are bold and the other letters in, uh, aren't in bold. And it makes me it means that I can read incredibly quickly. My husband picks that up. Oh, can't read that. And it's as simple as that. It is as simple as that. It's just taking it down to how do we process the world around us by information is everything that is coming through our brains, through our eyes, through our ears, through our senses, how we process that information. And we can get so hung up on labels that actually we forget there is a human being at the center of that. So for me, yeah, I, I have the label of ADHD. But for me, what that means is I like to be able to read in this particular way. If I'm out in public in a big crowd, I need to wear special earplugs so that I can really focus on the person that I'm talking to. Not everybody will need to do that, but it's about that acceptance that for me to process and engage and be involved in a conversation or what that that's what I need to do. And that's all it is. It's just acceptance of that person's way of processing information, whatever it might be. And we, f we forget that that's really what it boils down to. I really like that because when we think about treating people with dignity and respect, that's not abstract. It comes in the concrete particular. So there, are, of course, there are general things, but for you specifically, for me specifically, for the person you know next to me specifically, what does that mean? We are individuals and we all have unique strengths. We all have weaknesses. And so we can come along. And that's the wonder of diversity. The wonderful thing is that if the world just mirrored me, it would be fabulous, but it would be lacking, right? <laughs> we would have no bridges because I can't do mathematics or draw on a straight line, you know? Yeah. So, you know, and so the, the, the vast variety in the world brings the color alive, brings innovation, and we are part of a human community. And so many times we think about accommodation for the other, but if we start realizing all of us are accommodated to one degree or another. And how am I asking people to accommodate me? Maybe my understanding of time and timeliness, maybe my understanding of whatever. 
is a way I'm asking other people to interact with me. And some of those we might say are more common, right? Or typical. And some of those are less common, but it's still in a kind of accommodation. And that's what you do when you respect individuals. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the number of times I've been in a mediation and somebody said, well, I sent you that information and what came back was rubbish. Like, have you actually taken the time to understand why it wasn't what you expected it to be? Have you taken the time to understand if they've understood where you're coming from? A lot of um, everything to do with neurodiversity, mental health, it comes down to us setting boundaries and expectations for ourselves, but also communicating those expectations. If we are in a position where we're unable to communicate those, we then need others around us to create time and space to allow us to be able to let that come through in whatever method is right because I know when I've been in the the depths of depression for me to process information is absolutely impossible regardless of anything else that's going on in my head processing information when I'm in the depths of depression is absolutely pointless because it just won't happen but having people around me who give me the time and space to work that through that give me the support to work that through means I come out the other side of it empowered being told this is what you should be doing. This is how you should be working. Why aren't you in work? Why are you off sick again? What that does is it creates that thing in that person's mind that actually I haven't got time and space. And that is where it doesn't matter whether it's neurodivergence, whether it's mental health, whether it's just the way you process information without any of those labels. Time and space is such an important thing and being treated back to fairness again, back to trust, back to um, being able to fail. Um, if we're not allowed to do a, a, any of those things, it doesn't matter how we process information because we just will not be engaged and we will not feel safe. Right. And and being trusted, right? So if, I, if I'm trusted as a person, as a professional, and I say, I can't do this right now, we trust that person. They can't do that right now. And the more that we get to know our colleagues without prying, this isn't not an advocate for prying. I'm not an advocate for calling your work, your family, but we can recognize, oh, this person is suffering. What can I do to come along that, along that person? This person is celebrating. What can I do to come along and celebrate? You know, there are people who, you know, their child is graduating from college and like, oh, but we have an important meeting. What? (laughs) You know, (laughs) let people celebrate, let people mourn, let people be excited about running that marathon and let people be sick, right? Let people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if every single one of us on this planet did that, you'd find conflict would disappear overnight. Yeah. I'd be happy to be out of a job. Yeah. I, 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 I make people laugh when I say mediation must be one of the one career choices where we're actively trying to make ourselves unnecessary. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. I go into organizations and say, okay, I want to train you so that you do not need me. And I want to, put, I want to help you put things in, pro- in place so that you guys can do it and you're self-sufficient and no need for me. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, at the end of a mediation, I always say in the nicest possible way, I hope I never see you again. Right. Well, Marie, we've talked, touched on a lot of subjects. I would like you to talk about one more thing. Here in the States, we don't like to talk about women's issues, especially when it comes to things that are uncomfortable, such as menopause. I mean, uh, we can barely talk about pregnancy and pregnancy rights. Oh, my gosh, how dare you decide to have a child and inconvenience us? 
or be a woman and go through a natural life cycle of what happens in your body. And a lot of there's, I see, because I follow a lot of stuff going on in the UK, people seem to talk about menopause and menopause issues. Do you have any advice for those of us who live in the States and elsewhere about being comfortable about allowing people to go through their natural lifespan and coming alongside them, such as with thing, issues like menopause? Yeah, I mean, the, the, again, there's some simple things. It's about communicating with each other. So taking the time to inform yourselves on the subject and take the time to educate. We see um, menopause. Uh, I talk about this on my Mental Health and Complex Conversations course. We talk about menopause. It's always seen as women of a certain age with 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 that knowing sort of nod that goes with it, you know, women of a certain age. But actually, that's rubbish. It is anybody. Uh, I think I heard it described the other day as anybody born with a womb goes through the menopause. But also it's our transgender colleagues who are taking hormone replacement therapy can create symptoms of menopause. It can be the 30, 20, 30 year old um, going through breast cancer who is having to have chemotherapy, which can trigger menopause. So we need to normalize the discussion. First things first, we absolutely need to normalize discussion. It's taken far too long for us to normalize the discussion around mental health, and we're still struggling a little bit there. We need to be a lot quicker with menopause because um, I think it's in that 70% of the female workforce is of menopausal age, not necessarily going through the menopause. That'll be horrendous if we're all going through it at the same time, um, but of menopause age. And that's a lot of talent for organizations to lose. Um, there was um, a, a study done in 2019. I need to update my uh, my reference here because I'm sure there's been one done since. There was a study done in 2019 in the UK where one million women had left the workplace because their symptoms were not being supported. Wow. They were not being supported whilst going through those symptoms. So a lot of the stuff, it's, it back, it's back to basics again. It's basic human interaction, taking the time to understand whether that means you go away and educate yourself or whether you actually ask, sit down and ask the questions and say, look, I'd like to understand more. Talk to me about what's going on for you. It is about changing the culture. And it's not just about menopause. It's about female health in general, because we don't talk about periods. We don't talk about pregnancy. We don't talk about any of that. Right. And actually, there are certain days of the month where I can't focus because of what's going on for me as a woman. Yeah. So, you know, we are physiologically different from men. The same as the certain things that go on for men that we're never going to understand, but we're never going to understand if we don't have a culture of breaking down those taboos. That's where normalizing the conversation comes in. Yes, we need a. Yeah, I was just thinking about periods as you were talking. I, I've been seeing these videos on TikTok and it's an organization where they hook men up to like a, a period cramp simulator and have them do work activities. And it goes like one to 10, you know, and they're OK. They're OK. And they hit around three and they're like, oh, my goodness. And they're like trying to explain like selling this house or packaging this shirt up or something like that. And it like dawns on them for the first time, you know, like, oh, this might actually be a thing it's like not just a women are bleeding but they might be in pain and that i mean that doesn't even cover as we know what actually happens but i say as we know you know people with periods nod men are like what do you mean as we know <laughs> i saw this other tiktok that had um this man came up to, to his girlfriend and said pulled out these two tampons and one said l and one said r and he said 
explain this to me left and right it's like no <laughs> light and regular <laughs> I've, not, I've not seen that one I mean I, I was my, my nan bless her she's 95 year old years old my nan and she was talking to me at the weekend because we, we happened to be having this conversation she said when she was growing up even mothers and daughters didn't talk about it it was you know it was the monthly curse or you know it was given so many different names other than what it actually is and she said even my granddad, even her own husband, she didn't really talk to about. Whereas my poor husband gets chapter and verse every month, whether he likes it or not. But um, I'm trying to normalise the conversation, you see. So, and it and it starts, again, it starts with us. You know, if people don't want to listen to you when you're talking about it, that's a them problem, not a you problem. Yeah, so it is about, you know, we are trying to normalise the conversation. It isn't a taboo. The thing that... Anybody who doesn't go through a period or doesn't go through menopause doesn't seem to realise it's actually we can't control it. It is a biological response based on how we are made up, basically. So we have it's not not like we can, oh, tomorrow I'm not going to be menopausal tomorrow, it'll be fine. We we don't have that choice. We're we're passengers in this journey. And that's the bit that does seem to get forgotten. And I think it's because we we don't know we don't talk about it enough. We don't, um, you know, maybe, maybe we need to have one of these TikTok birds in, in every business and ev everybody has to go through or everybody that, that isn't going to go through menopause and periods needs to go through that and actually feel what it's like because it's not nice. <laughs> it seems to me to wax philosophical for a moment, but a denial of bodies, being an embodied person. And I don't want to go so far as to say a hatred of, and that's not a hatred, but it's a, a not recognizing what it means to to have a female body. You know, and to say, okay, we need to be gender neutral. We're all the same. Well, no, men have issues, women have issues, but this is what it means to be in a female body. And it's not good, it's not bad. It is what it is. And to say that I can't talk about having periods or what it's like to be pregnant or, you know, pregnancy loss or all of those reproductive issues and then uh, what it means to have that fertility come to an end, it is being human and being human in the way that the kind of body that I have. And so that is not good, bad. It's what it is. And we need to be able to talk about it. It's not gross. It's normal. It is. It is. And, and you know what? That seems to be the one thing that has been forgotten, that actually what, what we go through is completely normal and it's completely natural as well. It's completely natural. And it, yeah. It, it sometimes beggars belief sometimes when I'll be talking to somebody and they, oh, I don't want to talk about that. And I'm like, okay, so who do you talk to then when you're struggling? Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of it is that uh, people are just told to keep it, to keep it to themselves, keep your struggle, whether it's physical pain, yes. psychological pain, yes. financial pain, what, you know, whatever it is, we're told to keep it to ourselves. And at work, we are supposed to, you know, I think we are supposed to keep things to ourselves because we're in a work environment. We're not at a family picnic. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, there is that art of sharing properly. I think, I think it's a virtue. You don't want to overshare and you don't want to keep it so much inside that you suffer unnecessarily. But that, that starts with your manager. It starts with the people who work around you being accepting that sometimes those conversations do need to happen but also knowing where the, where the line is, where the expectation is that actually, you know, we, we will have this conversation to support you. But if you need further support, then we'll, we'll do what we can to guide you in that direction. But you do need to get, go and get that further support. But 
that will only come if we're in an environment where we again we're psychologically safe where we can actually put our hand up and go you know what i've got my period today i feel rubbish I've had depression and anxiety for years and today is just a bad mental health day for me. I had an argument with my partner last night and unfortunately I haven't slept particularly well. Or I've had a nightmare school run this morning and it's taken me three times as long to get the kids to even put their shoes on this morning, let alone get them out the door. So I'm not I'm not going to be performing at my best, but I will still do my best. Having an environment where people can bring themselves to work no matter what is going on for them and that they will be accepted and supported is the most important thing. The parameters of that can be discussed on an organisation basis. But people knowing that when they're walking through the door, they are not going to be criticised because they've only had two hours sleep is an important thing for, for everybody to know when they do walk through that door so that they feel safe. I like that you point that out because it seems highly unrealistic. And I think it treats workers as robots to imagine everybody comes in is going to give 100% every time and everything's going to be excellent and there'll be no problems. And that's the expectation. Well, you have set yourself up for failure because you're working with humans and humans (laughs) are a mixed bag. We're wonderful, but we are a mixed bag. And that means that you pull out that handful of jelly beans and every day at work, you're going to get something different. And if you have a psychologically safe environment, it will, it all evens out. We can support each other because some days I'm on fire and some days I'm not getting out of bed, you know, or, or I just got there, like I'm here and that's what you got, but it all works together. If we can support each other and recognize and have realistic expectations, professional expectations, but human expectations. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd be interested to know interested to know that those people that turn around and say you can't bring your stuff to work, what they actually do with their stuff. Yeah, because it's coming. <laughs> Absolutely. It's if there. It caught, yeah. If it hasn't caught with them already, it's gonna. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's just that's normal. That's life. Exactly. Exactly. So, and and that says we we've got to remember that we're all we're all living life in the best way that we can. And it is to say it's it's just about creating the most psychologically safe space you can so that we can live it to the full. So the last question I'd like to ask is when you look into the future and you think about how do we bring about organizations where people are treated with dignity and respect, but more than that, because I think that's minimally decent, right? That's just you are achieving being a human, but we want more. We want to flourish. Absolutely. And so I've heard you talk about psychological safety is I mean, so what is your answer? How do we bring that about? Is Do you have anything to add or is it bringing about psychological safety? I, th- I think the, the biggest thing for me isn't particularly what the end state looks like. It's the journey to that end state or journey to that moment. And I've seen so many organisations try to change everything at once and then wondering why it hasn't worked. So uh, we had a phrase uh, while I was at Royal Mail, massive, huge company, that trying to exact change in an organisation of that size was like trying to turn the Titanic. Yeah, you are going to do it edging a bit at a time, a little bit at a time, moving until you get to that point where you're facing away from the iceberg. To expect anything else, you're setting yourself up to fail. So in order to achieve psychological safety, you need to know that the employees around you are going to fail. You need to know that the organization at some point isn't going to perform to the standard that you are expecting it to. And whilst that can't happen long term, in the short term, that is okay, because 
that those environments where people are allowed to get stuff wrong. I don't know about you, Mary, but when I get something wrong, I'm absolutely determined to get it right next time. It's where ideas come from. It's where innovation and creativity come from. And telling yeah. people you've got to do it right first time perfectly every single time. It's too much pressure for people. And you are setting yourself up to fail. So it is about creating time and space. It's about understanding that you're not going to fix all of your problems overnight. You are not going to fix all of your problems in the space of one change management process. It is a journey. And actually enjoy it. I love that. It is a journey. It takes intentionality and it takes sustained effort over the life of the organization. It is not just like DEI. You don't go to one session. You're like, we got it. You know, that's it. No, it's, it's not a training. It's a way of being, it's a mindset. And that means we are going to fail. And as you said, if we make it so people are afraid to fail, we curtail innovation and creativity because people won't take chances. They won't make those big swings. They won't think out, quote unquote, outside the box. And so again, we actually hurt ourselves by making those rigid. Um, that I love that enjoying the journey of doing something new, doing something that's life giving. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. What a fun conversation! Thank you for asking me, Mary. It's uh, it's always good to chat about all the stuff that makes me tick. So, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, all right, well, take care. Thanks, Mary. Thank you, Marie, for your time. What a interesting and fun conversation a lot to consider conflict managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me mary brown you can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com if you're interested in watching videos on conflict resolution that are very short you can find me on tiktok at 3p conflict restoration my new book how to be unprofessional at work tips to ensure failure comes out August 1st. I'm very excited about it and I hope that you love it. It's a book that highlights unprofessional behavior in order to figure out what it means to be professional. So many conflicts at work come about because we have differing understandings of what it means to be a professional. So let's have those conversations. The music for this podcast is courtesy of Dub Pilot. And remember... Conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.